Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are now ready to enter into John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is regarded by some as the last chapter in the Upper Room Discourse, which began in chapter 13 with the washing of the disciples' feet and continued with instructions in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. But now what we have is a record of Christ's prayer, so this is not certainly direct instructions spoken directly to the apostles, but I tend to classify it as part of the Upper Room Discourse because Christ clearly intended for this prayer spoken to his heavenly Father, directed to his heavenly Father, not to his disciples, but he clearly intended for that prayer to be overheard by them, the disciples, and therefore constitutes another way of instructing them and preparing them for his departure. And we are so very, very thankful that the Holy Spirit of God included this prayer in Scripture. It could have been spoken by Christ without being heard by anybody, but that was not the case. It was heard by the apostles. It could have been spoken by Christ, we could say prayed by Christ, and though heard by the apostles, not included by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament scriptures, but by the wisdom and design of God, we have it both heard by those who were with him at the time, as well as recorded for all people of all times, and is particularly instructive and precious to those of us who have been saved by the grace of God. And so that's where we turn our direction today on this Sunday, November 12. Thank you for joining us, and many thanks to those whose financial gifts keep us teaching God's Word on this station. Well, a little bit of background first before we get into the text itself, but let me read the first five verses to get our to get a sense of the of the um, the sound of what what is going on here, and so we read in John seventeen one, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, "Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that you that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him." And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself 
and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And we'll stop there. There's a lot more. There's an <laughs> there's a tremendous amount in this chapter. I count it one of the most instructive and important chapters in all the Word of God. This is generally called Christ's high priestly prayer. This is primarily an occasion of Christ praying for his own, his own apostles, immediately, and then all of his believing people beyond that, because they are specifically referenced in the prayer as being included in the prayer. So he was praying for you. If you are a believer in Christ, he was praying for me as a believer in Christ. I'm so grateful for that. And, of course, it is recorded in Scripture for anyone, saved or lost, believing or unbelieving, to read it and to gain spiritual truth from it if they will take the time to do so and ask God the Holy Spirit to open their minds to be able to understand what is said. This really is an amazing prayer in so many ways. The prayer we generally call the Lord's Prayer, the one that Christ gave in response to the request of his disciples when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, after this manner pray you, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so forth. That's the one we call the Lord's Prayer. It might better be called the model prayer because, or the disciples' prayer because it was a model prayer for the disciples to follow, and I don't think necessarily to just repeat those exact words, but to follow the outline of the prayer, to follow the elements of the prayer, to follow the general substance of the prayer and expand upon it and make it personal to each one who prays that prayer and to teach us how to pray. And that's the purpose of the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, but in reality, it would not be wrong by any means to call this prayer in John 17 the Lord's Prayer. Well, let's first of all talk a little bit about it, about this prayer in, in general terms. General analysis, overview. And let me talk about its significance. And I can tell you that this is the only prayer of Jesus of any length recorded in the Bible. Now, we know that Christ prayed often. We are told on a number of occasions that he went apart into the mountains to pray, that he spent great portions of whole nights in prayer. And again, we don't know exactly how many hours were included in that and all that was said in that. We really don't know. It's not recorded for us. But it's clear that those were times of significant prayer, and we would gather probably longer prayers than this one, but they are not recorded because God didn't intend for them to be recorded. But this one is recorded. It's the longest prayer of any length of Christ's that is recorded in the Scriptures. We have shorter ones. I've already made reference to the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, at the request of the disciples, which really wasn't Christ praying. Can we call that a prayer of Christ? Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. Because that wasn't Christ praying, that was Christ saying, this is this is the manner, not the exact words, but this is the manner, this is the form, the manner that you should pray, like this, our Father which art in heaven, and so forth. 
So in in uh, most, what should I say, most uh, accurate terms, that really wasn't Christ praying. So what prayers do we have recorded of Christ in the scriptures? And most of them are pretty short. You've got some of his prayers recorded from the cross, but they're short. Into thy hands I commend my spirit, Father. Why hast thou forsaken me? Would come immediately to mind. Uh, I think about the prayer of Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. It was short. Uh, Father, I thank you that you hear me at all times, but so those, and I'm having to paraphrase now because I don't have it in front of me, but so that those who are here can know what's going on here, I'm paraphrasing, I am asking you to to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then after praying that prayer, he said, Lazarus, come forth. There there are references to prayers of, of Christ in Scripture beyond the the occasions where we are told that he went into the mountains to pray and went went apart alone to pray and so forth. As, for example, when we're told that when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, he took bread and break it and, and, and he blessed it. And, and we're, we're told that in regard to the Lord's table. Um, but those would presumably be short prayers. So I'm just trying to tell you what we have here is a treasure in that we have a prayer of 26 verses, a whole chapter. The most significant prayer in regard to its length that has been recorded for us by the Holy Spirit of God. So it is significant in that regard. It's the longest prayer of Christ that we have in our possession. It is also a unique prayer in this respect. There is no confession of sin as Christ taught the apostles to do when they prayed. After this manner, you should pray. My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day, or give us, it's all in the plural, because It was spoken to all of the apostles, but also because it apparently was designed in such a way that it can be incorporated into corporate worship. I I think that's not a bad idea at all for us to learn the words of that prayer and to teach that prayer to our children. So give us this day our daily bread and this line, this petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, Christ prayed for those who trespassed against him. Father, another prayer from the cross, a short one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Christ had no sin to pray to confess. Another evidence, another testimony to his sinlessness. There are several statements in the Bible that make it very clear he was sinless, and it was necessary for him to be sinless. It just astounds me that I, from time to time, read results of religious polls that indicate that a rather large percentage of people who consider themselves evangelical, born-again believers, do not agree with the statement that Jesus Christ never sinned. What kind of ignorance do we have in the realms of Christianity today? That's astonishing to me. But evidently, the the uh, 
what should I say, the quality or lack of quality, the, the style of Christianity that great numbers of people are involved with has not even taught them to know that Jesus Christ is sinless, has not even taught them to know that Christ had to be sinless in order to save anybody. And the kinds of messages they're hearing apparently give them the impression that Jesus did sin just like they do. How, how do we get to that place? Doesn't that in itself tell us the, the low level, the, the uh, astounding ignorance, the corrupting nature of what is called Christianity in our day, that there could be, I, I think it's something like 40-some percent of people who are polled who do not necessarily agree with the statement that Jesus Christ never sinned. In an effort, I suppose, I, I have a hard time figuring this out, but in an effort to make Jesus my friend, Jesus my pal, Jesus uh, so... so um, what should I say? So human that I can relate to him. And of course, he was entirely human, and he did that for the purpose that people could relate to him and could 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 get a revelation of the unseen, transcendent God in this physical human being who robed himself in human flesh. But in our style of Christianity today, where we seem to dumb everything down and 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 miss the point of so much and corrupt so many things and, and try to make Jesus my friend instead of my Lord and my Redeemer, then we sometimes at least give the impression that he goofed up like we goof up, but it's all right if we goof up because he goofed up and he understands. I mean, really now? And so I'm just simply, simply pointing out that in this extended prayer of Christ, from the one who taught his disciples to pray for forgiveness for their transgressions, there is no statement of Christ confessing sin. That would be ridiculous. That would be blasphemous. That would be catastrophically uh, ruinous if Christ were quoted as confessing his sins, but there is no confession of sin. So it's unique in that regard, and it is instructive in that regard. It teaches us of the sinless of Christ, sinlessness of Christ. It is unique in Christ's special relationship with the Father, which is different from our relationship to God the Father. We cannot enter into a relationship with God the Father like he did, because he is God. God exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. You say, I don't understand that. Join the club. I really don't understand it, but it is so obviously clear that this is what the Scripture teaches, that this, somebody has said, and I think wisely so, to deny the Trinity, and that's what this is called, the doctrine of the Trinity, even though that word is not found in the Bible, I agree to those who have heard objectors to this doctrine say, why, the word Trinity isn't even found in the Bible. True. Therefore, the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. False. <laughs> Just because that word isn't in the Bible doesn't mean 
that that truth is not taught in the Bible. It is taught repeatedly in so many ways in the Bible. But yes, deny the doctrine of the Trinity and you lose your soul, but try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. We cannot comprehend it. We cannot comprehend it. But don't you dare deny it. Because listen, I may be talking to someone who has denied the doctrine of the Trinity or has given receptive ear to those who do and is considering that a possibility that the doctrine of the Trinity is wrong. Let me tell you, dear friends, if you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you are denying the true nature of Jesus Christ, who has presented us clearly in Scripture as eternal God, as well as a man who had a beginning. And as a man, he had a beginning in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that's when he took upon him humanity. But who was the one who took upon him humanity? He is eternal deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and so forth. John chapter 1. And many other scriptures that indicate so clearly to us that Jesus Christ, the man, had two natures. He had his human nature that had a beginning, though it will have no ending. And he has a divine nature that had no beginning. He is eternal. He is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. It is three persons in one Godhead. It is one God eternally existing in three persons. If you deny the deity of Christ and and conceiving of Christ as one who sinned, of course you're denying the deity of Christ. God cannot sin. God is not capable of sin. If God sinned, he would not and could not be God. And so to deny the sinlessness of Christ is ultimately to deny the deity of Christ and is to deny the redemptive ability of Christ, the the substitutionary sacrifice ability of Christ, for he could not be a substitute to die in the place of others. He could not give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for others if he had his own sins, his own guilt. That required a sacrifice in order to be reconciled to the God against whom he had sinned. What nonsense! And so, no, there is no record of a confession of sin. He had a unique relationship with the Father, which is different from any relationship that we can have, and that comes out in this high priestly prayer. He had a unique work in redemption, which he came to accomplish, which is different from what any of us are called upon to do. There's so many things about this prayer that are unique and that, that manifest the uniqueness of Christ. But in spite of that, and I'm still talking about the overview and significance of this prayer, in spite of that, it is in many ways an exemplary prayer. We can't follow exactly every thing about this prayer because it doesn't apply to us because we are not God the Son. But there are a lot of things in this prayer that are 
wonderfully exemplary and show us how to pray in a God-honoring way that gives all the glory to God. That's what you'll see in this prayer of Christ to the Father. Now, what can we say about the setting of this prayer, moving from the significance of it to the setting of it? And the question is, where was Jesus when he prayed it? And actually, that's a bit mysterious. We're not told exactly. We don't know exactly. But probably this was still in the upper room where this whole upper room discourse began in John chapter 13, when Jesus gathered with his apostles in the upper room. And there he instituted, there he observed the Passover meal, and out of that instituted the Lord's table. And there he declared the, the, the ending of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant, the New Covenant, which is the testament or covenant in his blood, and where he instructed his disciples in all of these wonderful instructions that we find in chapters 13 through 16, probably he's still in the upper room. Some think he's left the upper room before he prayed and prayed maybe in the streets of Jerusalem or on the Mount of Olives on his way to his betrayal, his, his uh, arrest in the garden. But I, I think taking all of the different possibilities together and looking at them one by one carefully, it seems to me like the most likely, by, by far the most likely in my mind, is that he was still in the upper room with the apostles. He didn't leave that location until this was completed. It tells us in chapter 18, verse 1, and when Jesus had spoken these words, the words of the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So it makes it clear there that this was before he crossed the brook Kidron, a small small brook on, on the east side of Jerusalem, and before he went into the garden. That doesn't rule out the possibility that he could have left the upper room and this prayer happened somewhere between the upper room and Brook Kidron, but where would be a suitable location for that? Would he have prayed a prayer like this in the streets of Jerusalem? It just doesn't seem likely. So let's assume that this prayer took place in the upper room. This is, therefore, I think to be considered part of the upper room discourse, I've already said. He, this, this whole chapter, this whole prayer opens with these words, Jesus spoke these words, that may be in reference to the instructions of the upper room discourse, Jesus spoke these words, comma, in my translation, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... So we see the shift of direction. He shifts his direction from speaking to the apostles. Jesus spoke these words to them and shifted his focus upward as he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, so he spoke the following words to the Father. He spoke the previous words to the disciples or apostles. He spoke the following words to God the Father, but he spoke them in the presence of his apostles for them to overhear. 
So I think it's certainly appropriate to consider this as part of the upper room discourse, but not in the same way. It's it's an it's similar to, I suppose, to the public prayers in our corporate worship services. What are the elements that ought to be included in our gatherings, the assemblies of the saints, the corporate worship of God's people as we come together to worship God? What are the elements that ought to be included in that time? What do we find indicated in Scripture that ought to be included in that time? In most cases, in, in certainly in the churches that I am most familiar with, the sermon is the main element. It takes more time out of the total time than anything else, and that can vary from church to church, but still most people understand that when they go to church, if you want to use that phrase, and everything that is included in that idea of going to church, assembling to worship, assembling to to obey the Lord in our assembly of the saints, which can only be carried out by assembling with the saints, and that when we do that, one of the main things we do is go to hear a sermon, which ought to be something that will help us to better understand a portion of Scripture. A sermon, I'm convinced, ought to be an explanation of Scripture, an elucidation of Scripture, a proclamation of Scripture, both in the sense of, first of all, the Scripture being read, so the very words of Scripture are publicly proclaimed, but then it is explained by the preacher. This is what it says, now this is what it means, and this is how it applies. And most of us have come to expect that to be, time-wise, the largest element of our worship time, but there are several other things in Scripture that are indicated as God-honoring elements, God-directed elements. We are, during this time, to sing praise to God, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's part of what we do. Teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is not just private devotions and singing to the Lord individually and privately, but teaching one another with songs and hymns, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. It's it's a heartfelt thing, but it's a spoken thing because we're teaching one another. You can't teach one another simply by, by keeping something in your heart silently. But it comes from our heart. It's from our heart, and it's to the Lord, but it's also to the people of God. It has a two-fold direction. It is directed to God as praise and thanksgiving, directed to Him. It is directed to the people around us as instruction and teaching to them. And another element of our gathering together is public prayer. I think 1 Timothy chapter 2 makes that more clear. There's more said about the details of our corporate prayer, our, our public prayer and corporate worship there than elsewhere, but it's clear from several passages that one of the things that we are to do when we come together 
is have people to pray publicly for what reason? Well, we're praying to God, of course, but we are praying it in the hearing of everyone else so that everyone can hear, everyone can enter in, everyone can be instructed by these prayers, and therefore it becomes part of the instruction. The sermon is an important part of the instruction, but the singing is an important part of the instruction, and the prayers are an important part of, of the instruction. And Christ is here praying in the presence of his apostles, and therefore it's appropriate to consider this part of the instruction of the Upper Room Discourse. We'll take it up, Lord willing, next Sunday. Join me then. Until then, good day. May God give you his eternal peace.